This is Epicenter, episode 274 with guest Alexei Akunov. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Microsoft Azure. Do you have an idea for a blockchain app but are worried about the time and cost it will take to develop? The new Azure Blockchain Dev Kit is a free download that brings together the tools you need to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. Learn more at aka.ms slash epicenter. Hi, welcome to Epicenter. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Friederike Ernst. So a bit of housekeeping, uh, we are going to be at the uh, HCC in Paris. Uh, at least I'll be there. Um, other hosts might be there. Not quite sure yet. So HCC is happening between uh, March 4th and March 10th. But actually, that's the blockchain week. Uh, HCC is actually happening between the 5th and the 7th. But there's a whole bunch of things happening that week in Paris. Uh, hackathons and side events and meetups and such. Uh, it's it's a Apparently going to be a huge event. Uh, the organizers have told me that they're expecting up to 1,500 people and there are 300 speakers that are scheduled to speak. So it, it should be really amazing. Uh, if you haven't got your tickets yet, I really encourage you to do so. Um, they're actually quite affordable and should be a great event. And we will be having a meetup uh, at ETC. It'll be on the Wednesday. So that's Wednesday, March uh, 6th. Uh, the venue, uh, we don't have the venue yet. But we are taking signups for the meetup uh, on our Eventbrite page. So if you go to epicenter.rocks slash ETHCC, that's epicenter.rocks slash ETHCC, uh, at least you can sign up there, get our SVP for the event, and we'll send out uh, the location as soon as we have it. So looking forward to seeing you uh, in Paris. And so today our guest is Alexei Akunov. Alexei is an independent researcher, uh, works on uh, Ethereum, and works on different projects with the Ethereum Foundation. And uh, so we talked about a couple different things. Um, primarily, you know, we talked about so the roadmap uh, for Ethereum, uh, what is known as Ethereum 1.x, and uh, how it relates to Ethereum 2.0 Serenity, and also talked about his work on a project called TurboGeth. Uh, so it was a really interesting conversation because it got it, it really uh, allowed us to see sort of where the Ethereum roadmap um, or how the Ethereum roadmap actually had evolved since DevCon with this new point release uh, called Ethereum 1.x. With um, Ethereum 2 looming so prominently on the horizon, it's often easy to forget that uh, Ethereum 1 is actually going to be here for some while longer. And um, it's, uh, it's necessary and uh, totally worthy of people's time to actually make improvements upon that. Um, and we talked with Alexei about uh, what he's doing in that field and how it's going. All right, so without further delay, here's an interview with Alexei Akunov. Hi, we're here with Alexei Akunov uh, today. Alexei is an Ethereum researcher. Um, hi, Alexei. Glad, you, glad you're with us. Hello. Um, good, to, good to be here. Fantastic. Um, Alexei, let's, let's, let's jump right in. Um, can, you, can you tell us uh, what your background is and uh, what you're currently uh, concerning yourself with? Yeah, so I've uh, always been, uh, so since I was very young age, I was always doing programming, I guess. That was my profession all my life. Um, so I wrote my first computer game in BASIC when I was 12 years old. 
and my brother helped me to debug it because I didn't know how to debug things. And then it led to me going to university, study um, uh, computer science and programming. Um, and then I did PhD in computer science and then I worked multiple places and it was always uh, programming. So I like, learned a bunch of programming languages. And eventually, I learned about uh, the cryptocurrencies in uh, 2012 from my colleague at work. And we started to have a kind of lunchtime conversations. And uh, at first, I didn't actually understand it. So it took quite a few attempts for, uh, for this guy to explain, to, to kind of to, to make me understand what it is. And then uh, I started to research Ethereum when I was thinking about uh, decentralized storage. And the reason I we, we thought about it is that you probably heard about the idea about the um, the mesh uh, the mesh networks like a mesh net internet, and so one of the colleagues at work said that well we should have this mesh internet instead of internet providers, but then I said well how are you going to do the search like because the search requires storage and so you need data storage so I started looking into things, eventually I found the Ethereum white paper I looked at it and I thought that it would still not solve the storage problem. But it's interesting on its own right. So since then, I started following Ethereum. Um, and in, th in 2017, in June, I, so I went full-time and working on these uh, projects, mostly related to Ethereum, but sometimes I did some other things. And at the moment, I'm mostly working on this Ethereum 1X project, which, uh, which is about uh, ensuring the longevity of uh, existing Ethereum network. So... That's my current thing. Oh, I'm, I forgot that I was doing the Trooper Guest most of the last year. It's my uh, kind of my version of Ethereum client. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So may maybe let's just uh, let's jump right in with uh, Trouble Guest. So uh, I know you've talked about this uh, this uh, on many occasions. So uh, Guest is one of the main Ethereum clients, and Trouble Guest is uh, some sort of improvement on it, right? Well, yes, in so certain ways. It is not uh, currently functionally superseding it, but uh, my goal is to to, for, to to be functionally superseding the Geth. Yes. And so some, what are some of the issues that you saw in Geth that you felt you could improve upon and ultimately uh, led you to start building Turbo Geth? So, it's, it, it's, so the way it started is that I... Simply uh, did the profiling. So in Geth, it's in, sorry, in in the Go in Go uh, language, it, there's a very uh, a good toolkit for uh, for profiling. So I it was very easy for me to just run uh, some Geth sync on profiler and to see where it spends most of its time. So I saw that a lot of time was spent in going into the database, and then I started digging deeper, and I realized that. Wow, the each go each access to the state actually needs multiple accesses to the databases. So I thought, well, this is really weird. So I found this was kind of not how I expected it to be. And then digging deeper, I I, I wanted to fix that part. So I wanted uh, essentially for so that each access to the Ethereum state takes one hit of the database and no more. And that was kind of defining goal. Um, of this, uh, and then it, it it sort of turned out to be a quite a deep rabbit hole, which took me a year to <laughs> to explore. How much better does uh, Turbo Geth 
fair compared to gas? So it mostly, uh, so it, it, at the moment, it's, it's better in, in two areas, I think. Uh, so it might be on par or maybe slightly worse than others. So it's better in terms of the compactness of uh, state uh, history. So as, uh, if you, let's say, run an archive node, which is the node where uh, you have the entire history of state expanded, not in the blocks, but expanded, meaning that you can fa access it really fast. So I haven't run the Geth archive node for a while, but the last time I did it in in summer, it was about 1.5 terabytes on a disk. So that's an expanded state. In TurboGeth, however, currently the expanded state in archive node is about 360 gigabytes, so which is a, which is a big difference. And um, that's the one thing. And the second thing is the, the actual speed of access. So when you want to run some data analytics, you want to retrace transactions from the past, uh, the TurboGeth is definitely like, I don't know, probably up to 50 times faster. So that's why I can do data analysis on it that I wouldn't be able to do on Geth. So if, for example, for my recent project, I can retrace all transaction to, to gather, let's say, number of S stores in a block in about two days on my, so retrace all the transactions in all 7 million blocks. Imagine if I had, if I had to do it with Geth, it would probably take me like say 50 times longer. So it would take me like half a year, uh, which is, you see, it's, it becomes impractical. What have you actually implemented in order to actually facilitate uh, these improvements? So I essentially I changed the the way that the Ethereum client uh, represents its state um, on in a database, and that's the main difference. And the the most of the clients that exist now, and I think probably all of them except Turbiget, they store the state as the what they call try or uh, Merkle Patricia tree, which is essentially a a tree which for each node has at most 16 children. And, um, and the property of this tree is that if you want to read or write a certain entry, you have to start from the root and go down the tree. And the deeper is your entry, the more hops down the tree you, you're doing. And another important bit about this hopping is that you cannot do next hop before you did the previous one. So there's a data dependency. Uh, so that is actually what uh, was the initial uh, thing that I observed. So because of the data dependencies, you cannot do these things in parallel. You have to hop from the root down to the leaves. In TurboGeth, I decoupled the state storage from, the, from, the, from this Patricia tree. So I realized that the only reason why you need a Patricia tree is to, is to compute the state root but you can store the data as you like. And I like to store the data in a flat format where you have a key as the hash of the address and the value is the serialized value. So it means that when you want to access a certain item in the state, you just need one query to the database, just one. And that makes most of the things uh, much faster. So what are some of the trade-offs in using, because I mean, it seems to me like this is, of course, you know, we would want this and we would want all Ethereum clients to adopt like these similar improvements. There, there must be at some point some trade-offs, are there not, in, in, in order for someone to still want to use the regular Geth client? 
Yes, at, at the moment there are some things that are that are not supported in Turbigeth, which are working in Geth, but I think they will all be uh, superseded. So one of the things that I can not do in Turbigeth is uh, what they call fast sync. And the fast sync is the way of um, sort of joining a theorem network where you um, where you download the current state starting from the root and then just rebuilding the Merkle tree. And this particular way of syncing requires a certain query which uh, gives you the hash of the node in the Patricia tree and then you're supposed to answer with the uh, serialization of this node. Because TrueBaguette doesn't store this Patricia tree at all, it has no way of re responding to this query. Uh, so it doesn't know where this particular hash lives on, a, on, on which part of the tree, in which part of the history. Um, up until recently, I thought this is going to be a big challenge, but uh, after the workshop that we've uh, done recently, I've discovered that it might actually not be a problem. So we're, we're going to develop the new sync mechanism, which will actually be more efficient with TurboGeth than with Geth, uh, because it has the flat structure. So I think in the future, in the near future, TurboGeth will fully functionally supersede Geth if I have enough time to do this. <laughs> just, just to sort of understand the, the context in which you're building this, you're, you're building this by yourself or are you working in collaboration with the Ethereum Foundation in any way to so I was, sort of incorporate uh, TurboGeth into Geth? Well, I wasn't. I didn't think about incorpor incorporation yet. Um, I did uh, started as my own project, and then um, then I received the grant from Ethereum Foundation for uh, in two thousand eighteen, and uh, then I had some support from Infura because the for them it would be uh, beneficial to reduce the storage requirements and potentially run the the, the nodes on a cheaper hardware, but. Because it's not functionally superseding yet, it's, uh, it hasn't happened. So I don't know wh whether this is going to replace Geth or not. I think it, I will leave it this decision up to the Go Ethereum team. I never tried to force it through. or uh, And I also didn't have time and resources to actually try to port my changes into the Go Ethereum. And I, I was very explicit about it with the Go Ethereum team. And they find with that. They, uh, they understand that I'm also under constraints. Just to clarify, can you can you just quickly talk about what the current state of TurboGeth is? So is is it live? Can people download it? Can people yes, use it? Yes, it is. Uh, uh, it is live. The current version does not really have the kind of the Constantinople Petersburg fork in it. Uh, it hasn't done this rebase. So um, it is currently rebased up to the state of Go Ethereum, which existed in somewhere in January, I think, end of January. And you could t uh, currently download it. You can do the full sync. So this is the only sync it supports. It, you have to start from Genesis and you apply the blocks. If you have a decent machine, it will take you probably two weeks to, to do that. And you will end up with the file, which is like 360 gigabytes. And then uh, you can do your RPC queries. You can process the blocks. And some of these RPC queries are much faster. Some of it are slightly slower. But yeah, it's, it is working. I haven't tested all the RPC queries, but generally it works. Uh, the light client is not, are not supported and the subshot sync doesn't work, uh, but this could be fixed. 
so yes it's uh, it's uh, and then in fewer I also also managed to sink it uh, some time ago so it sort of I had some <laughs> independent verification that it's actually not just a figment of my imagination <laughs> so are you going to drive it forward or is this going to uh, it, to become a thing for the ethereum foundation to also because maintaining maintaining going, this is a lot of work yeah so i'm going to drive it forward um and that's why i and because another there is another uh, application for the super geth i'm also working with the uh, interchain foundation because they are very interested in using super geth as the kind of engine for the Ethermint project. Um, and at the moment, I'm figuring out how to to merge this flat structure that I have in Turbeget with their uh, AVL balance trees. And I think I found a way to do it. And my, my, my idea is to abstract, to, 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 to modularize rather uh, the code so that I can use it for both Ethereum client and for Ethermint client. So uh, there is definitely appetite for it. And as, as I said earlier, Infura is very interested in actually using it to begeth. And I also now discovered that the, the biggest use case for me and uh, hopefully for other people is use it as a data analytics uh, source. Because as I said, it's much more viable to do data analytics uh, with the to begeth than with any other client at the moment. And that potentially could be useful for companies like Google to because they're already looking into this uh, analytics in the cloud using Ethereum data. And not just for Google, but for anybody else. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Microsoft and the Azure Blockchain Workbench. Getting your blockchain from the whiteboard to production can be a big undertaking. And something as simple as connecting your blockchain to IoT devices or existing ERP systems is a project in itself. Well, the folks at Microsoft had you covered. You already know about the Azure Blockchain Workbench and how easy it makes bootstrapping your blockchain network pre-configured with all the cloud services you need for your enterprise app. Their new development kit is the IFTTT for blockchains. Suppose you want to collect data from someone in a remote location via SMS and have that data packaged in a transaction for your Hyperledger Fabric blockchain. The development kit allows you to build this integration in just a few steps in a simple drag and drop interface. Here's another great example. Perhaps you're an institution working with Ethereum and rely on CSV files sent by email. One click in the dev kit and you can parse these files and have the data embedded in transactions. Whatever you're working with, the dev kit can read, transform, and act on the data. To learn more and to build your first application in less than 30 minutes, visit aka.ms epicenter. And be sure to follow them on Twitter at msftblockchain. We'd like to thank Microsoft and Azure for their support of Epicenter. So, so I was just going to mention uh, Google and the work that uh, that they're doing. So we had Alan Day on um, a few months ago, who's an engineer at Google and who's sort of leading the project to bring uh, you know different blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum into Google Cloud, so that you can effectively uh, query the blockchain um, and do data analytics in a very simple query language. Um, so what are the applications there, and how could TurboGeth be beneficial? I mean, because I presume you know, Google's got these really you know, incredible machines and they don't really have, like computing power is not really an issue for them. Um, how is TurboGeth beneficial in this case? Well, I mean, obviously, if they don't care how much it costs to run these analytics, then I, there's, uh, there's nothing for me to offer. But if you do care about the cost, I think the TurboGeth can make the 
the the cost of running this analytics much small much uh, smaller so it you can you know you, because of the efficiency you can run it on like tens of the hardware that you usually would do so uh the improvements that are that are made in travel uh, guess over guess uh so um mostly uh database yes uh, it's mostly database in nature, right um so could this be used for for I mean I, I mean there are six or seven Ethereum clients, but only two that are really used, so Geth and Parity. Could this also be used for Parity? Yes, um, though in I did actually think and talk uh, with Parity about it. So they need uh, enough motivation and enough sort of justification to do this. It will require the big overhaul of their architecture of their client to to do something like this. Essentially, this is the overhaul that I have done for, for Go Ethereum to, to do this. But the, same, the similar overhaul were required because you essentially have to change many, many things. So they had a similar project, um, not that ambitious, called the Parity DB, which is essentially flattened representation of the current state. Uh, this, this hasn't been integrated into the Parity yet because they haven't found enough motivation for it. But it might be if we go ahead with some of our plans like uh, an advanced sync client. I sort of see that if if this project is going, we will see convergence and then other, uh, other clients will implement it, especially if it becomes kind of all around benefit. You know, there will be no reason not to adopt this. Yeah, I see. So if there are no drawbacks, there's, there's no reason to not also exactly, implement the yes. superior database. Cool. So you earlier alluded to the fact that you also do other things. Uh, you mentioned Ethereum 1.x. Yes. Can you, can you quickly um, uh, tell us and the listeners um, what you mean by Ethereum 1x and how it differs from Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2 and how Serenity and Constantinople actually fit into the picture? Yeah. So I'm going to walk you through the, what I call the short prehistory, uh, as I usually introduce the 1.x. So it starts with the... Um, Cancun in November November 2017, where Vitalik had gave his closing speech called, uh, um, what was it called, Modus Proposal for Ethereum 2.0. And in that speech, he uh, said that uh, the plan, well, some his suggestion is to keep the Ethereum 1.0 as the conservative and safe uh, chain. And uh, most of the innovations uh, will go into the shards, shards on Ethereum 2.0. So people thought, well, that makes sense, kind of. And then uh, in May 2018 at EdCon in, in Toronto, Vitalik gave another presentation about the, what I think it was called, so you want to become a Casper validator. And so that was about, uh, uh, about running the Casper validators on your laptop that, uh, the, it basically signaling that uh, the Casper FFG, as it called, a friendly finality gadget, was near, was close. But then, somewhat surprisingly for people, uh, in June 2018, there comes a uh, I call, what I call pivot in Ethereum 2.0, meaning that the Casper FFG on Ethereum 1.0 would not happen. Instead, there will be a separate chain, which is called the Beacon Chain, that will be launched as the in parallel to Ethereum 
And then the Casper researchers and the sharding researchers will be merged into one research team because they turned they they turn out to be doing lots of similar things. And then that pivot basically meant that well, we are not going to so the, the the first people thought, well, maybe this pivot means that we're gonna get uh, sharding faster or Casper faster. But then by the October and November 2018, when again Vitalik uh, laid out the potential timeline for the Serenity, it became clear mm, actually it's not going to be that fast, right? It might take three years optimistically to functionally supersede the Ethereum 1.0 and maybe five years uh, not so optimistically. Um, by functionally superseding, I mean you need to go through phase zero, phase one, and phase two to actually get to the same functionality as we get in Ethereum 2.0. So if just just launching the beacon chain is not enough. Um, so then people realized, oh, we have to we have to live with the Ethereum 1.0 for another three years at least, and probably for another five years. And look what is happening. <laughs> and so this kind of look what is happening was it was sort of the, the initial chatter in on DevCon 4 among the kind of core developers, like, whoa, what do you think is gonna happen? Like, is it going to, we, we, we're really struggling with the growing state, with the sync, uh, with the synchronization, things taking forever, Are we, is it gonna work? So this is what, how the Ethereum 1.0, 1.x actually worked. And the reason why it's called 1.x is because we don't know if it's gonna be 1.3, 1.5, or whatever, 1.7, so we just put the X in there. Cool. So um, as I understand it, there's a couple of things that are actually part of Ethereum 1.x and different people are working on them. So um, may, may, maybe you can give us a short overview um, of who is part of Ethereum 1.x and what kind of projects they're working on. Okay, so there were initially uh, four working groups that were kind of initiated um, for Ethereum 1.x. Uh, so one of the working groups is the uh, we called it state rent, and now we call it state fees because it might not be just rent. And so I take I took on the the sort of the the leading this group, um, and people agreed. People were who were there. Um, I hope it's still okay. <laughs> and then there was another group uh, about uh, chain pruning. So the this is uh, the the group which we'll be looking at. Um, something which is not related to the state directly, but also something that current Ethereum clients uh, have uh, some issues with uh, storing the blocks, which I think is going about 70 gigabytes or 80 gigabytes now, the block bodies, and also the growing event logs uh, storage. So these have to be, we, we have to start pruning them at some point. And so um, so Peter Zilagi has uh, stepped stepped in to lead this group. So it everything is kind of fluid at the moment. So the groups uh, are not really sort of restricted to these people. So we always uh, welcome new people to contribute. Um, and so the third group was, um, so the third group was EWASM group. So some people might be surprised what is EWASM doing in, in there. It's like, how is it related to this? Like, is it, uh, so I agree that some, some it might sound uh, a bit artificial, but the initial when we initiated this, the belief was that something like a state rent 
or state fees will be a, a kind of restriction to the resources that we give to the dApp developers. Um, and it's good to bring something in return. So you, you take something and you give something else. So you're not just taking or you're not just giving. It's a give or take. Um, so Iwasm has a potential of, of um, doing this. And also Iwasm could help to, uh, to reduce the number of point features that we have to introduce. There was a lot of talk about introducing new precompiles for lots of different cryptographic primitives. And that if you look at the history of Byzantium release, there was a lot of time spent on just implementing two or three precompiles because of the proper gas calculation, lots of testing. And so instead of doing that, instead of spending the time, core developers' time on that, why don't we just do the what they call the last precompile, which is EWASM, and then you can implement all the precompiles there. It has a lot of nuances, but these are the two reasons why EWASM is there. And currently, EWASM is basically led by EWASM team. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to list all the people because I probably will uh, will miss somebody out. But uh, um, So then the, the fourth group is uh, that has been formed is the... Uh, Emulation simulation group is uh, essentially this is the group that tries to find out the what are the tools that we can use to support the other groups like state rent and, and uh, the chain pruning group to do some sort of uh, test to, to to run some test scenarios and to to try to predict what problems that we're going to face in the future what are they going to be the first things that will break you know that's the roughly the description I. As I say that I don't have a list of people who work in each working groups because it's all, at the moment, it's all very fluid and open. I, 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 I see anybody who contributing to, the, to this as a part of the working group. So I just want to maybe uh, come back on this and, and, and maybe clarify a few things. So this, was, this is all very confusing to me. Um, okay. The, the version right. numbers and then also, uh, you know, Serenity and Constantinople, and as someone who sort of vaguely follows this, I thought it was confusing. So I can imagine for someone who's coming into the ecosystem, just how confusing it could be. So we had Ethereum, you know, there's Ethereum, uh, like up until now, um, and at some point, uh, you know, the idea of Ethereum 2.0 was uh, was put out. But as it stands, it looks like all of the features that are on the roadmap won't be ready for production deployment uh, until maybe three to five years from now, or at least until that arrives to stability, it might be some time. Yes. Uh, however, the Ethereum blockchain and the, the, the system as it, as it stands has a number of problems and a, and a number of issues. So uh, during DEF CON, these people came together and said, okay, let's form these working groups so that we can come up with a dot release in in the version one of ethereum which would include some of these features so that we can continue to build the ecosystem and build dApps on top of ethereum yes that's that's uh, that's uh, exactly correct uh, uh, representation and also people realize that the the fates of ethereum 1.0 and 2.0 are linked one cannot uh, live without without the other so and uh, this is the important bit. So you cannot just simply forget about what's happening on the Ethereum 1.0 and hope that, you know, 
we will get there like with the Ethereum 2.0. So it had one supports the other. Okay. And just so in, in the 1.x version of Ethereum, which is this version that we aspire to, to build at some point and to release, there are sort of right now four things that are in that roadmap. One is state rent, which we'll come to in a few minutes. The other is chain pruning, so optimizations on the size of blocks and logs, uh, EWASM, and emulation and simulation yeah. tools. And so what's left then in Ethereum 2.0 in the roadmap? Okay, so Ethereum 2.0 uh, is a very ambitious project. And the parts of the, the work that we are aspiring to do in Ethereum 1.x will be very useful for Ethereum 2.0. For example, it is uh, seem to it seems to me that uh, there is a some consensus that the state rent will be required in Ethereum 2.0, uh, and the but it 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 the the difference between the sort of the state rent in the second Ethereum I would call it and the first Ethereum is that in the second Ethereum it could be pure. It doesn't have the legacy of the current ecosystem, current contracts. You don't have to deal with it my transitional issues with the things that you have to look at so in ethereum in the second ethereum we can just introduce it in pure form without all the mitigations for the certain vulnerabilities but the lessons that you learn with the, the first ethereum will be invaluable for properly introducing it into into the second ethereum the same i would say for ewasm you can learn a lot of lessons on the way and apply Iwasm in a much better way to uh, to the shards when it comes in. And I mean, the chain pruning obviously will also be uh, good. So any, basically my conclusion is that everything that we do will be useful in second Ethereum because it will make it a better system. So it will inform a lot of design decisions. In addition to proof of stake and yes, yeah, beacon yeah, yeah. chains and all of these other things. Yes. Okay. It, it, it seems, it, it feels like this was a natural thing to do anyway, like to do things in, in an iterative sort of fashion. Yes. <laughs> I, I, it kind of seems logical to me. That... Yes, there was, a, I, I see it as the sort of the gap, which was uh, probably temporarily over, was temporarily overlooked. And we simply just recognize this as the gap. And then we, we have to still put uh, resources in this gap rather than just shifting them all, 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 all to the, the second Ethereum. Cool. I think, I think this is uh, a great preface for actually talking about these proposed, uh, these proposed uh, things in detail. So um, can you briefly recap what you mean by state rent and why we need this? Okay. So, the, so first of all, uh, the, this, the idea of state rent, or some people call, used to call it storage rent, uh, they, it is not a new idea, and a lot of people entertained it back in 2014 and 15 before Ethereum started. Um, but previously, people were uh, concerned about the cost of storage. Essentially, they were looking, oh, you know, when you uh, uh, increase the, the, what I call expand the state of Ethereum by, let's say, creating a new contract or by um, introducing a new item into contract storage, then you pay for it once in the gas, and then it's there staying forever, unless you decide to free it, which you know you might not never never do. Um, and so people were representing this problem as like, okay, so you pay it once, but then other people will have to pay for it uh, for like till the end of time. 
So at some point I realized that this is probably was the failure of the previous uh, uh, kind of rent state rent researches that they concentrated on this particular uh, cost or on the cost of storage. Because it, if you start this argument, you very quickly find yourself arguing about things that you don't know. Like we don't know how much it costs to store these things. Like we don't know how much, how the, depending on different kinds of storage, how the, the cost function tails off and things like this. So instead, we sort of pivoted from this approach and realized we're going to only talk about the performance implications of the state rent, of sorry, not state rent, of the large state. This is the problem that we've seen is that as the Ethereum gets more use or even with a constant use, the, the size of the state grows and that brings some performance problems, which we could observe. It's not something that we can we speculate about. It's something that we can measure. And this is one of the reasons why we have this emulation simulation group to help us. Okay, so, in, but the other part that it didn't answer, I think, is the, um, so if we don't bother clearing the state that is, uh, that people use, and the, the concern is that the, the state is, is probably something that you use for a while, but then you, you know, the, the dApps come and go, a lot of them come and go, they will, you know, if we, but the state that they've been using is in the system. So everybody has to keep downloading it back and forth. So what we can talk about is the total set state, which is essentially, let's say, 10 gigabytes at the moment. Everybody has to download 10 gigabytes when they join a network. Um, then let's say that if there's a 6 gigabytes or 8 gigabytes of this, which nobody cares about, like people will rarely use it. It's just there because they were there first. And then there's a use, useful state, which is uh, everybody, uh, everybody who knew new people who come to the system, they have to be content with using just two gigabytes. So, and so the, 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 the problem is that this, this kind of the useful state kind of keeps shrinking. Uh, so you essentially end up with a lot of garbage in your state, which everybody has to shuffle around. But the actual useful space is really constrained. You can you can compare it with the with let's say the state of the property market in the in the uh, like central of London or something like this, where there's a lot of houses empty. They they are actually owned by somebody, but nobody really lives there. And then so the the rest of the so the, all the people who want to live there they have to be content with a very small number of houses. And obviously, they will be have to pay a lot of money for renting them and stuff like this. So, if you instead just get <laughs> not get rid of this uh, the empty houses, but uh, kind of get rid of them, build new ones, and redistribute them in in a sense of the the rent. So, I think uh, our premise is that this is the the important for longevity. So, uh, to so that, so that the system does not become kind of this dead uh, what you call the ghost town where where there's uh, lots of empty houses and nobody can use them. Okay, so basically the idea is um, to, to charge people not once when they start using storage and then paying them back a certain amount if they free it up again, um, but actually charging people by the day or by the block um, that they're actually using the storage. Exactly. So if they decide that they don't, don't need this uh, things anymore, they can just withdraw the ether or they just leave it, leave it you know, leave it and then it will be kind of garbage collected by the rent. So I see the rent as the garbage collection mechanism mostly. 
and a lot of programming languages actually have that built in as well, right? So basically, that you free up space that you that you uh, yeah. no longer need. Yeah, the, yeah. The difference between the programming languages and this is that we have a very difficult difficult problem of determining what is not used anymore. So that's why we have we need the, uh, things like recovery. Is that if we made a mistake and removed something that people actually need, there has to be a way to bring it back. Okay, so walk us through the process. So basically, um, say you you have a, you have a smart contract now, and it it uses storage, so yes. it has to pay rent, so it has to have funds, or someone needs to pay funds on behalf of it. Um, so what happens if no if no one pays? So um, under the current proposals, or all of them, actually all three of them, uh, this, um, so when the smart contract uh, exhausts its balance and the rent balance, there are two separate things. So when there's nothing in both of these balances then eviction happens. So eviction under the current proposals that eviction doesn't just happen automatically, somebody actually has to poke this contract. So by poking mean that somebody has to create a transaction which touches it, like to access it in some way. For example, somebody queries the balance. And then in the end of the block, this, this contract gets evicted. And eviction happens differently for, for non-contracts and contracts. For non-contracts, which basically just have some monetary ether eviction means just removing from the state because apart from the because there's nothing really useful in that you know there's no useful information for contracts of course there's a there's a storage so eviction on the current proposal does not completely remove it from a state but it leaves a so-called a, a stub which is essentially the hash the commitment to the entire state of the contract before the eviction and this stub unfortunately it does have an effect that it does not completely remove it from the state, so it has to still dangle there. But this stub is what allows us to restore it later on. If, if it was by mistake and somebody realizes, uh, so the biggest example is, uh, for example, if you had the multisig wallet uh, with lots of tokens on it, and then you made mistake by, uh, you didn't pay up the rent, and you realize suddenly, oh, my multisig is gone, and <laughs> there was a million dollars in it, I want it back. <laughs> so you would be able to uh, use the recovery mechanism to rebuild the storage of this contract in another contract and simply use a special opcode to restore it from the stub. And then you get your contract back, you can top it up with the rent, and then you keep using it, or you can move your, your things elsewhere. And the, the stub, is it, where is the stub stored? The stub would still be stored in the state. So this is the kind of the price we pay for the recovery. So the stub is expected to be 30 bi 32 bytes uh, sort of hash, uh, which is a commitment to what the contract looked like before it was evicted. Okay, and so how, I'm, I'm not sure I understand then how that solves the problem of uh, freeing up state if the stub is stored in the state. Yeah, so this is... Uh, basically a non-perfect solution and we um we have a more perfect solution down the line but we go, we want to see if this non-perfect solution is actually going to be enough so if uh we uh so obviously for this for the contracts which have not no storage at all or have very little storage this stub is probably going to be big enough so that there's not enough benefit in clearing but for the contracts which have a uh, uh, lots of storage the 10 million items Sorry, not 10 million, so 10,000 items, million items. For those contracts, of course, the benefit of clearing will be a, a quite big. So instead of 10 million things 
sorry, 10,000 things, you can have one hash in a state. And everybody has to download only just that one hash rather than all the 10,000, 10, sorry, 100,000 items. Yeah, it's a non-perfect solution, but we hope that it might be enough for our purposes. Okay, I'm, I'm still not sure I understand. So the, the hash itself contains just the hash of the state, but where is the act? So like come back, coming back to this idea of recovering a multi-sig wallet, um, where is the actual data? Like, so if, if that data gets deleted from, from the blockchain, Okay, so this data will have to be recovered from uh, the history, obviously. So if, you're, if you want to recover your multisig, you have to go to our archive node or some node which still have the history, recover, the, like, recover what the state was, and then uh, reconstruct that state on chain. And then uh, instruct the blockchain to, instruct the EVM to recover, to restore it. Okay, so it only it, it it doesn't alleviate archive nodes from having to store this data. It only alleviates those regular nodes from having to store the state data. Exactly, because the 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 problem with we're we're seeing is not actually the disk space that users have. So as I said, we are uh, trying to not care about this too much because it. But we are actually now looking only at the active current state that everybody has to download when they when they join the network which is the more much more acute issue to solve and your multi-sig will be deleted from that state but leaving this stab that you can use to then prove that okay this is, was the state of my multi-sig please recover it and it will be recovered can you use this as a feature? So basically saying, this is a contract I want uh, I, I want to have on the public ledger, but I don't need to access it often. So maybe only once a year or so. Oh, sure, so yes. I will let, let it run out of rent and then basically only the stub has to be saved by everyone. And then I will I will migrate it to a new contract. Uh, I will restore it um, when, when I need it again. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. You could probably use it to, to, to uh, to save uh, some money on rent, yes. So you're just kind of uh, hibernating your contract. That sounds very similar to um, stateless contract design that you find in some other chains. So for if, or for instance, Polkadot uses this or also our chain. Can you compare those two? So yeah, so the, 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 the difference is that uh, in the stateless contracts, we assume that the, what, when the contract is, uh, is represented as a stub, it's still accessible by the normal operations. In the uh, in our in our proposal, the when the the stub is uh, when the contract is in the hibernation state, when it's a stub, it's not accessible by anything. It's basically invisible by EVM, with the exception of this special opcode, which is called restore two. Only that opcode can see that stub. Nothing else can. So to other uh, contracts or to other observer observers, it looks like it's not there. Uh, and so with the status contract is not true. So with the status contract paradigm is that it's supposed to be usable. It's to, you're supposed to be able to, to mutate that state to access the, you know, the bits in the offline chain storage. With our, with our mechanism, it's like you have to first restore it, bring it back on chain, then you can use it. And then you, if you finished using it, you can let, let it expire and then uh, clean it up if you, if you want to. 
So is it is when you talk about a earlier you mentioned a perfect solution and a non-perfect solution. So yeah, the if we find uh, if we find that this is not enough, uh, for example, if we find that there will be lots of tons of little contracts uh, having the trash stubs and then still the state is still not uh, small enough, the perfect solution uh, it's not actually perfect, but uh, so it's it, it basically uh, completely removing the contract from the state. Um, and th there, there are three alternatives how to deal with it. So first of all, not recover it at all. Um, this is the, the kind of the nuclear option. Basically saying that once it's gone to the stage, there's no way to bring it back. The second stage, second option is uh, what Vitalik uh, suggested in his uh, paper on the resource pricing. Um, it's essentially you, uh, when you want to revive the contract, which is not in the state, not even a stub, you need to pr prove two things. You need to uh, obviously reconstruct the state, the state that it was, and then you need to prove that at some point in the past, this was the the state, the, the, the state of the contract. And the, the way you prove it is through the hash chain, through the header chain, and through the state route. So this is the first thing you need to prove that it existed at some point in the past. But the second thing you need to prove that. It did not exist at any point after that. So what this is what they call exclusion exclusion proof. So first you do inclusion proof, and then you do exclusion proof. And for the exclusion proof, it's tricky because you basically have to prove for every block since the eviction that it wasn't there. And it, there are ways to optimize it. For example, if you say that we now mandate that every contract has to live at least for 1024 blocks uh, and then it means that you don't have to do exclusion proof for every block but just only for every 1024 blocks and the way we can mandate it is say you say whenever you create a contract you prepay the rent for one year one for 1024 blocks in advance to make sure it will not get evicted um, and the, the third uh, way to do it which is a uh, is uh, what i call the graveyard tree is essentially uh, eviction of the contract will require to have access to some kind of graveyard miracle tree where all the evicted contracts st um, live and so if you want to evict something you say okay i'm going to this is the you know the the state of the graveyard tree or like miracle proof to this to the place where i'm going to put this contract and this is now i'm putting this contract into the graveyard and this is the modified Merkle tree proof. And then later on, if somebody wants to revive it, then they, they give a proof. This is the contract inside the graveyard tree. And this is the update of the graveyard tree without this contract. So you basically take it out of the graveyard and put it back into the chain so that you don't have to do exclusion proofs. But this requires everybody who ever wants to evict or uh, restore contracts to have this full copy of the graveyard, uh, graveyard tree. Uh, but I, we hope that will not we, it will not get there to to those things. Uh, so I will dis I've described it a little bit in my first proposal. I have excluded it from the second for simplicity. I might bring them back in the third, but basically we hope we will not need these measures because they're slightly more advanced. <laughs> 
um, looking at this, um, so basically, if, if this were a completely new system, uh, obviously, this makes a lot of sense uh, that you don't pay for storage once and then you can use it essentially forever. I mean, that's the, w the way that this the system should be designed. Um, but obviously, that's not the case here. So basically, you, you, you have to move this from a system where people actually uh, deployed smart contracts under different assumptions to this, to this new state-run system. And uh, to me, it seems there would be a lot of complications. Correct. You're absolutely right. So this is what makes this, uh, I would say, both very challenging and very rewarding at the same time. Because we're not designing the pure system. We're designing the, the kind of the migration from the legacy system to some non-perfect system that we're introducing. So that's why uh, we, when we started analyzing the the implications of the of the rent on existing contracts there were few things that basically sprang sprang into the mind so one of them is uh, what we call the dust griefing vulnerability and uh, kind of the conclusion was that most of the contracts that exist today will be vulnerable under this uh, vulnerable to this attack um, well to this yeah to this griefing attack i can explain it to you if you want uh, yes, please. Imagine that, as an, take an example, the, our beloved ERC20 <laughs> token contract, um, which has uh, things like transfer and approve. Uh, and so, uh, so the approve is a good example because the approve is essentially allows somebody to pull the tokens out of your, out of your uh, account. And uh, also another feature of approve is that anybody can call it even without being a token holder. So I can call approve to and on any contract without even having to acquire tokens. So all I need is just a tiny bit of ether on my account and I can approve lots of things. So if you imagine that if we have this token contract, which has the information about all the token holdings inside it, in its storage, uh, then under the state rent regime, this token contract will start paying like the rent proportional to the number of items. And so that means that if I am a, a, a villain, if I want to hurt this contract or to make sure that they abandon that, that or maybe I may be a competitor or something. So what I will do is that I will start doing a proof like on lots of lots of random things so that I can inflate the storage of this contract by using a little bit of gas. And so I will condemn them to pay a lot of fees forever by just doing some tiny investment of gas things. So that's what I call the uh, dust griffin attack. So I create a lot of dust. I can do it by transfer as well. I can purchase some tokens or acquire it in some ways and then just distribute them over lots of dust accounts, which will also inflate the storage. But approve is much better because you don't even need to take the tokens. And the same applies for, other, for lots of other contracts. Uh, uh, so, for example, for the DEX, for the uh, either Delta, for for IDEX, so every trade settlement is the is the is creating another storage item. So, as you trade, you basically inflate, keep inflating this contract and stuff like that. So, this is one of the first thing to solve. And uh, so far, the intuition is that most of the contracts that are existing popular today will be vulnerable, and they will have to essentially be rewritten. Which is a bad news, but um, um, 
And then another realization we did is that there, uh, if we look at the, the contracts which depend on each other, let's say if you have a, some sort of decentralized exchange and you have a things like MakerDAO, which now have some links to each other, so like you can move the contracts from one to another, or you have some other interrelations. So if we say, okay, now we're going to introduce rent, all you guys are going to be vulnerable. You have to upgrade all of you at the same time. This is not plausible, right? So you have to say, well, you've got this time to upgrade, maybe one year or something, and this is how you can do it. And you can do it in um, one by one. So first, the contract, which is the dependency of everybody, upgrades first, then the, uh, the, the other dependent contracts upgrade next, and so forth. Uh, I know this is really challenging, but uh, we will see. Uh, uh, we, we still don't know when the... That this this problem will really become a, um, a kind of crucial to solve, but uh, current intuition it, it will have to happen within the next two years. Will, will you help people determine what kind of contingencies and dependencies there are? Because basically, this seems like um, it it is enormously com complex. It, it, it's a, li a little bit like um, fixing an engine while it's running. Yes. So you you, yeah. you take out little parts and you, you need to make sure that the en engine actually keeps running while you're actually switching out parts. Yes, this is enormously, I mean, this is kind of one of the biggest part of the project. And at the moment, I in the plan, in the, in the kind of the project plan I've been creating, I call this part um, ecosystem research. And that would consist of essentially enumerating all the different uh sort of contracts and dApps that we have, and then for each of them to have somebody looking into those uh, contracts and determining what are their vulnerabilities, what uh, will happen to them, and what are the ways they can, they can rewrite and modify this. And of course, then having this information going to these uh, developers of these contracts and have conversations with them, say, this is how you're likely to be affected. This is how you, we think you should uh, try to rewrite and get their feedback, maybe they will give us uh, the idea about some missing features in the proposals, maybe something which we haven't thought about. Uh, so, yeah, this is, uh, uh, is going to be a, a large work. And at the moment, I think uh, we're trying to make it, to make it more kind of con community-driven. Uh, and uh, by this, I mean we're planning to create a lot of uh, Gitcoin grants and bounties so that multiple people can work at once on the this different because it will require like massive parallelization parallelization of efforts like i'm not trying to do this myself because uh, simply there's not enough hours in a day and uh, so there, there's going to be there has to be a lot of people working on this so that's probably going to be the big the most intensive part of this whole thing so this is going to be a massive undertaking and just to just to give people an idea of the of the unforeseen consequences that this could have you recently tweeted about uh, the parity, uh, oh, yes, the, the parity contract that was suicided last year. Uh, so, can you talk about that? Yeah. So this is the. Um, so first of all, I don't want to give people an impression that this was intentionally designed this way. Um, it's a realization that I came to me when I was reading some tweet uh, tweets by uh, John Morelli, and so he was asking whether create two. So they were discussing the, to create two consequences, and they, the Morellian is asking, like, is it going to enable parity, uh, parity multi-sig recovery? And I said, well, obviously not, but something else would. 
So essentially, in, in the proposal number two, there was this part which is called replay protection, which means that so when your non-contract account gets evicted from the state and gets reinstated, so you can reinstate it by sending some ether to it, then uh, it would normally get the nonce zero, which means that you can repeat the nonces that you had before. And so as, uh, let's say, if you pretend that you are the, the person who has the private key from the account that deployed Parity Multisig Library, like pretend that you're Gavin Wood, if it was a Gavin Wood, right? And you still kept that private key. And then we deployed this play protection and then we deployed the, the rent and eviction. So then what Gavin would do is that he would uh, take that private key, take that account, he will remove all the ether from it. So it will be zero. Then he will get it evicted by poking it. So his uh, contract gets, not contract, so his account gets evicted. Then he puts some more ether into it, gets, it comes back with a non-zero. Then he says, okay, when I created the Parity Multisig library, my nonce was, let's say, 35. So then he does 35 transactions to something else. And then it gets to the same nonce as he had when he deployed the uh, Multisig library. Now he does the transaction which deploys completely different contracts, which is, doesn't have the, the, the vulnerability and the problem fixed. So the library comes back at the same address and everybody gets access to the funds, right? Uh, it's not, it wasn't designed this way, but it was, the the reason why it, it sort of uh, became possible because we did not think about the nonces not just nonces are not just for for replay protection nonces also used as the determining of the contract addresses so and now it has to be a consideration so in the in the third proposal i will replace this particular replace uh, replay protection mechanism with another which does not repeat the nonces so essentially the conclusion of this the nonces cannot be repeated. Interesting. So, I mean, this is this is an enormously uh, ambitious undertaking. Um, so, what's what's the timeline on this, and do you intend to have some sort of proof of concept? Um, yeah. Well, the timeline for the whole project is uh, probably anything between eighteen months and thirty months, uh, because we are. So, the for example, the state rent, which is the most complicated bit of it. It has uh, many pieces in it. So at the moment, I when I'm writing proposal three, it, every every change has a letter from A to to S. So how many letters are there? You you figure out yourself. And they organized in the sort of dependency diagram, which shows you which change is necessary for the uh, prerequisite for another change. And so the such diagram already exists in the second version, so you can have a look. But the third version is very difficult. And then using this diagram, we split it into pieces. So, so this could happen in the first hard fork, this could happen in the second hard fork, and this is happening in the third hard fork. And actually, interesting bit about it is that at some point, let's say after first hard fork, we also get some side benefits. We will be able to increase the blow gas limit, which uh, which currently we're not recommending doing. We do not recommend doing because it will accelerate the state uh, size growth. So, as I said, if it's a three hard forks, and if we assume that each hard fork takes us eight, nine months to execute, then it will be 27 months, right? Uh, but we will already be starting getting some benefits after the second hard fork if we start evicting uh, the uh, non-contract accounts. So, proof of concept is, uh, I think, 
you know, this is how we're going to operate with this, this, this thing is that the proof of concept has to be done as an iterative process before you even get to the EIPs. So that's my opinion specifically about for this project because it's so complex is that so we already had one uh, first proof of concept on the first uh, version of proposal uh, done by Adrian Sutton from uh, Pegasus. Um, so we're going to be doing more of this proof of concept, uh, potentially again with uh, Adrian, but also engage some other people to do that. Uh, so essentially idea after one or two proposals versions, we will do proof of concept to figure out what has been unspecified, what is all uh, ambiguous. And, uh, and obviously, this proof of concept will also allow us to generate the test cases for the so that it's pretty easy for the other core developers to then implement those things. So we do a lot of work up front so that when we put out the EIPs, we already have proof of concept and we have test uh, generated. So that's the ambition. Earlier, you, we talked about eWASM and you know, mentioned that Ethereum 1.x would, would have eWASM um, as part of its roadmap and that in Ethereum 2.0, uh, there would be improvements on eWASM. Now, let's not, I mean, well, I don't think we'll go into the details of what eWASM is. If um, our listeners can go back to episodes uh, 245 with uh, Martin Bessie or uh, 263 with Justin Drake um, for... You know, a, a more in-depth uh, discussion on what it, exactly is Iwasm, but with regards to the roadmap, uh, can you talk a bit more about sort of the steps uh, that we would see here with Ethereum 1.x and Ethereum 2.0 with regards to Iwasm? So, um, yeah, Iwasm is one of the reasons Iwasm has been brought under this uh, kind of umbrella of the Ethereum 1.x is that um, it enables us to not concentrate on what we call point features. So, and um, so if you look at the, let's say, Byzantium release of Ethereum, which happened in October 2017, it included uh, four, I think, four precompiles, new precompiles, which is the sort of optimized uh, uh, subroutines, which you call for, for some cryptographic uh, operations. And although it was very useful, it actually took a long time and a lot of work from the Ethereum core developers to prepare. It's very tricky. And uh, since then, there was more and more requests for more precompiles because uh, the lot of things that the people find useful are simply too costly to implement in EVM, the bytecode. So there's more and more requests. And at the moment, uh, we find ourselves like, you know, if we try to implement all these requests, there's going to be no time for other things. So EWASM is seen as a solution to this, as the, what they call, uh, what some people call the last precompile. So essentially you uh, roll out the, the engine, which will be uh, more efficient at executing those uh, operations. So more tuned to, let's say, hardware as the EWASM is. Um, and so it will enable us to, uh, to introduce uh, these uh, features like much easier so that's what uh, that's why i call eWASM as a meta feature as opposed to these point features which are specific precompiles people asking so we don't have to spend our time coding up specific precompiles that people want we just do things as it give us execution engine and maybe in the beginning it will be used for core developers to to quickly introduce this request of precompiles and in the future to just open it up to everybody 
So if you want your pre-compiles or whatever, you just deploy them as the eWASM contract. So that's the, that's the vision. And eWASM would then, in effect, run in parallel to the, to the EVM? Yes. So there is no plan, in, at least in, in, the theory, in the first Ethereum, to replace EVM with eWASM because I don't think it's practical. Um, and other people also think it's not practical. Um, so there will be some ways to call eWASM subroutines from uh, EVM code. Um, it might be uh, done via special opcode or, or some pre-compile. Pre Essentially, there will be uh, some kind of boundaries where you enter the eWASM. And now the eWASM execution engine, which will be in all the Ethereum implementation, it will take over from EVM. So at these boundaries. And then when the eWASM procedure subroutine finished execution, it will give the control back to the EVM. This kind of the... And at some point during the execution of eWASM, there might be some points where the eWASM code will require access to some of the Ethereum state. So uh, it's not just going to run and do some pure com math computation, but sometimes it will have to go and fetch something from the state or, or maybe update the state. Can you talk about some of the ways or some of the scenarios where it would be, it would be useful for AVM to call up an eWASM subroutine? Yes. So uh, one of the uh, things that um, was kind of discovered in by the work of, uh, let's say, Greg Colvin, when he was uh, working on the what they call uh, EVM 1.5 project. So he uh, said that he did a lot of experimentation and he discovered that because uh, the EVM has a, such a long word, which is 32 bytes, all operations have to be done on a long words. And it's much, much less efficient than if you just had op operations on 64 bits, which is uh, mostly implemented in hardware. So eWASM, for example, is much more attuned to the hardware execution because it has 32-bit uh, registers. It has 32-bit and 64-bit registers. So when you execute this code, you don't have to do a lot of uh, aggregation of the you know because the math on the long words is much uh, much much slower so the idea is that we uh, for a lot of the useful things we can execute things on evasm faster just simply because it has this different arithmetics and because it uh, it might have more optimized uh, compilers and things like this uh, so it has, for example, it, I don't think it has a dynamic jumps uh, like EVM has. So it allows some sort of more static analysis, uh, like another another optimizations. That's my view of this, at least. Cool. So uh, I, I think we uh, need to wrap up soon. So um, I have some questions as to the how you see the future of Ethereum. So it seems that um, for Ethereum 1, uh, there is still um, a lot of potential to make Ethereum 1 as is better without actually touching upon uh, both sharding uh, and, uh, and uh, proof of stake. So given that uh, Ethereum 2 is going to take longer than expected um, to actually be put um, into place, um, what would you hope to see in the coming months and years with Ethereum 1.x? And should, for some reason or other, 
um, Ethereum 2 fall through entirely? So sh should this fall apart just because basically each of these two big topics, um, sharding and, uh, and proof of stake, both of them are enormously complex and meshing them together only adds to that. Um, so, I mean, do you think there is a danger of that not happening and Ethereum 1.x and um, and uh, putting the pressure on Ethereum 1.x to actually step up um, to to take uh, to, to take over for the next couple of years? Uh, well, I think that um, obviously there are a lot of uncertainties about the future of Ethereum 2.0 because at the moment they have a phase two phase sorry phase zero pretty well specified, but the as we saw in some of the reviews, uh, um, I think what one that I read was from uh, James. Uh, Presswich, uh, so he did a lot of interesting review where he says that as you go through the phases, the there's more and more uncertainty. And for example, the phase three, which is uh, so it's almost like there's very very vague about what is this gonna, how this is gonna work. So I do sometimes have some not worries. I don't worry about that much, but I do have uh, some uh, doubts that it might take a bit longer. Then let's say even five years for this to to happen, and uh, whether the, the the there will be clear benefits uh, and how exactly sharding is going to be done. So, I mean, me personally, I don't I like fixing things that currently work rather than designing new, new designing new things because this is not my probably not my strength to try to implement completely new things. So I like fixing things that already work. And this is why the, 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 the Ethereum 1.x project is kind of perfect. So what we see in Ethereum 1.x, I think we will be able to solve the one of the biggest problems uh, without any uh, controversy or without any hard forks. I could go into this uh, if you would like. And uh, if we see that the Ethereum 2.0 is not you know, has some more delays, then we will redouble our efforts. And I think we could do certain things to 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 kind of to keep Ethereum working. Uh, we'll have to do some extraordinary measures. For example, we might need to uh, make the state access remote and do what I call poor man's sharding of state. Uh, so which is like a sharding, which is not uh, enforced by the by the protocol, like in the, if, if, if the second Ethereum. But the sharding, which is emergent, uh, simply from the fact that people are not storing the, the entire state anymore. So this is this is the things that I might see happening in the future. Uh, that, but if we, so what I do believe is that if, if we keep uh, focusing on this and not simply hoping that the things will keep working, uh, because I think if we simply hope that things are going to keep working, they will stop working. If we if you uh, keep focusing on making sure they do work and just keep fixing them, we have much better chance of basically keeping it alive for as long as we want. I think, uh, and and some there are some people like Greg Colvin. He believes that well, Ethereum the Ethereum 1.0 is probably going to be if, uh, alive for as long as um, or or used for as long as uh, you know maybe forever like i mean maybe it will coexist for with the with the second ethereum i mean maybe the the entire transition will never happen maybe some people will prefer to stay on on the list on this system for a very long time you can't really force them to 
to go away, can you? <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> you can, but it's, uh, we'll see what, how this happens. So let's, let's look into the future now, and, and I just want to get your thoughts on this. So you know, presuming that proof-of-stake chains are the future of blockchain and that proof-of-work chains um, become less and less used um, because proof-of-stake has clear benefits, and what we're seeing right now is like Cosmos is about to launch and you know, Polkadot is also making some headway. And like these, these chains are proof of stake negative. If it takes three to five years for Ethereum 2.0 to fully, you know, to be fully realized with proof of stake and sharding uh, and like, you know, side chains and everything. Do you think there's a risk that Ethereum would lose some of its network effect and some of its uh, sort of authority as you know, the primary and sort of like authoritative smart contracting uh, uh, DAP platform to other chains that are you know, natively proof of stake and you know, already you know, having the ability to build DAPs and things on them? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. So to uh, first uh, to address the point of proof of stake, I think I was really looking forward to Cosmos launch because I, to me, it was the first kind of non-trivial Proof of stake system that will come to the to to sort of production, and I'm really excited for it to launch. Um, and I think there was a bit of a, a competition there between all these uh, three things. And now, obviously, we probably will see Cosmos launch first, and Polkadot after that, and Ethereum only the third. Um, and we will see how it goes. And hopefully, this is going to work. Uh, <laughs> but I will still th see that the, the the proof of proof of work is not proof of work is not dead yet. So we will we will be stuck with it for a while. Um, and um, and to the second part of your question is whether Ethereum might lose its uh, appeal. It might actually do it. Um, and one way to not this let this happen is to actually uh, bring new experiments and innovations to it. So as an example, a lot of people look at the state rent as the, some sort of negative uh, kind of negative uh, thing. But I actually, I would say that lots of, if you look around, a lot of the blockchains that, that reached the certain state, st uh, sorry, scale, you know, in the beginning, when you launch a new blockchain, it's always like, yes, yes, we're going to be a super duper blockchain that will kind of scale enormously. but when they do reach certain scale, they start seeing the problems of the growing state. And these problems repeat again and again everywhere. That's why in lots of projects, they started to think about the state rent to introduce it, but nobody actually done it so far. So what I see, if Ethereum does it first and actually shows how it needs to be done, this is going to be a, a, a really big step forward, not step backwards. So it, it will be the first uh, real life introduction of this concept which everybody was just talking about and theorizing and now we have it in practice and um, it will be basically i can see it as the competitive advantage uh, uh pretty much uh, and uh, the other things as well is uh, uh you know if you um to do the the, the things like iwasm i know that uh, polkadot already has native iwasm but Again, we will see who is uh, going to do it first. Okay. Well, Alexei, thank you so much for joining us today. It was fascinating to uh, get uh, a glimpse and into this, uh, and 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 also really kind of get to understand where things are at with Ethereum right now. It's true that you know since 
since DevCon, a lot of things have been percolating and uh, it, it really helps to get someone to, uh, to really lay out uh, the current state of things and where things are going. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. It was a real, real pleasure to have this chat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.